You know, some people say that uh, Shakespeare was the greatest writer in the English language, but I couldn't understand any of him. <laughs> and I speak English, of course, I'm at a little disadvantage. English is my second language. I don't even have a first language, but he was, so, so it, it, that's why I didn't understand him. And then, you know, we were at a clergy conference not long ago, and we were discussing how can we share the gospel with millennials? And we came to the conclusion that there are some words that we use that we think we're saying one thing, but they're hearing something completely different because of the changes even in our language and our culture, even in this day. And, uh, and then we look at, look at our culture. In the 40s and 50s, we had songs like, Oh, my papa, to me he is so wonderful. And then by the 60s, we had psychedelic rock, and uh, we started an age of, of uh, fatherless families and fathers being made fun of on television at every turn. Uh, the, the difference in the culture in just our lifetime, never mind how can we understand the mindset, the culture, and the language of people 2,000 years ago when this gospel reading of the baptism of Jesus was taking place. That's why we have to go back to the original situation in order to see what's really being said there. And the way we do that is obviously you'd have to study and, and, and stuff, but mainly you'd have to ask the Holy Spirit. After all, it's the Holy Spirit who inspired the words of the scriptures and it's the Holy Spirit who illuminates the scriptures to us. So with that kind of mindset, I'd like to take a look at the baptism of, of Jesus today. But first, I'd like to say that Christianity has the greatest feast days. They are the greatest feast days. They're better than the 4th of July, Labor Day, Cinco de Mayo. When we have our, this is a feast day. This is the feast day of the baptism of the Lord. Our feast days are about the visitations of our God. They're the best feast days. This is a tremendous day in history, better than maybe we even thought that it was. And, uh, you know, it, it reminded me of, in the first three chapters of Genesis, we have the creation of all things, then we have later on the creation of man being made in the image of God, and we have the woman taken out of the side of the man, and then in the third chapter we see the fall of man, which is the worst day in all of history. And we're separated from God because of our rebellion. Adam decided to put his faith in the word of the one who was a liar from the beginning, rather than trusting the word of the one who cannot lie. And so in separating him from this holy God, we became unholy. In separating ourselves from the giver of life, death entered into the world and every evil thing. But there was a bright light in that day. The same day that God expelled Adam and Eve from the, from the garden, he promised to send a redeemer. And so just in those few verses, there's two and a half chapters or so, we know everything that there is to know. In the, for the condition that we're in, that there is a God, that he created all things, and that we're separated from him because of our rebellion, but he's going to send a redeemer. Now, the Old Testament is quite a large group of books, but from that moment on, all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, it's simply God threading a scarlet thread so that when that Messiah shows up, we'll know him. Even the giving of the law to the uh, to the uh, Jewish people was an important event, but the law was also to lead us to Christ. And so now all of a sudden, we see Christ showing up here at his baptism. And what I'm getting at is just in these few verses, we're gonna see, if we see it properly, we're gonna see the entire uh, foreshadowing of God's, of Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. 
You know, the, this event is in all four Gospels. That should tell you something about the importance of this first day. This is the first day of, of uh, Christ's public ministry. And we need to look at it through the eyes of a first century Jew. And then we can also look at it through our eyes looking back and seeing the event as God has revealed it to us. And we'll see a new Elijah. We'll see a new Exodus. We'll see a new Isaac, a new Moses, a new Joshua, a new creation. We're going to see a new Israel. We're going to see the promise of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see the Trinity all enveloped. And he's just these few minutes of Christ's life right here before us. The first thing we see is the Jordan River. What would the mindset of a first century Jew see or think of when he saw the Jordan River? You know, it's the most prominent river in the scriptures. It's where the old Exodus ended. It's a river that parted, just like the Red Sea, and the Jews were walked into the Promised Land. And when they were walking through, they picked up stones from the bottom of the Jordan River and made an altar, thanking God for their deliverance and their entrance into the Promised Land. It was a river that Moses overlooked in his last days and said, look for a redeemer just like me, coming from your brothers. It was where Joshua started the conquest of the Promised Land. These waters were parted again for Elijah. The last place they saw Elijah was crossing the, uh, on dry land of the Jordan and taken up into heaven. And of course, Elisha got his mantle and also crossed over on dry land back into the Promised Land. It's also where Naaman bathes himself seven times and he was cleared of, of, uh, cleansed of leprosy. And in the Old Testament, there are many times leprosy is symbolic of sin itself. There were forms of leprosy that just ate away the whole body. You had to stay away from it because it was synonymous with sin that can eat away at our soul, our spirit, our, our very being. You know, if I was living in Judea and my family said, where are we going to go on vacation this year? I say, we're going to the Jordan. I'm going to show you where the exodus ended, where our people crossed, where the altar was built, where Elijah was last seen, where Naaman was healed. In fact, all visitors, if they went over to Israel on a trip to the Holy Land, if they didn't see the Jordan, they would feel like they didn't see everything. That's the importance of this scene right here. And it's in the wilderness. The wilderness is the wilderness, of course, but it's not just a geographical position. The wilderness here, in the mindset of a Jew, is where God met Moses in the wilderness. It's where God met Israel in the wilderness. It's where God gave them the law in the wilderness. It's where God fed them with manna, bread from heaven. It's where God led him by a fire by night and a cloud by day. It's the place where the exodus began and where the exodus ended. It was the highway that God used to deliver his people out of the bondage of slavery into the promised land. There's no mistake what they're seeing here. And then who's there? John the Baptist. He's at the Jordan. And he's dressed like Elijah. His message, his lifestyle, his dress, his diet is just like Elijah. And the last place they saw Elijah was in the wilderness at the, uh, at the Jordan. And now Elijah shows up. And of course it was prophesied in Malachi and other places that, that there would be a voice crying in the wilderness, make, make straight the path of the Lord, and that, a new, and that Elijah would have to come. And now this Elijah is showing up out there. They see him as this end time prophet. Now you have to get the mindset of a first century Jew for the excitement 
that's going on in Judea and all of Jerusalem. Remember John's birth? His mother Elizabeth couldn't have any children. Father Zacharias went into the temple one day, it was his turn to be the priest that, that day, and he meets an angel. And the angel says to him that your wife is going to have a baby. He says, how can she have a baby? She's well past bearing age. He says, you're going to have a baby because you didn't believe me. You're going to be mute. So he comes out. He can't say a word. She gets pregnant. And eventually she has the child, John. And she says, well, we're going to baptize. We're going to uh, circumcise him and name him John. And all the family said, how can you possibly name him John? You have nobody in your family named John. Why don't you name him Zacharias? Let's ask Zacharias what name he wants to give him. So he couldn't speak. He asked for a pad, and he writes down, his name is John. And soon as that happens, his mouth is loose, and he pronounces a benediction over John that would knock your socks off. And you should, you should read it. And so, but what the scripture goes on to say that the people were in awe of what they saw. And not only in awe of what they saw, but they said, what? is this child going to be? Not who is this child going to be, what is this child going to be? He's going to be a voice crying in the wilderness. And so there was tremendous excitement even at the birth of John throughout all of Judea and Jerusalem. And now 30 years later, many of the people that knew this story, and maybe were even at the, the birth and there at, the day of, at, at that time, he, this guy John shows up and we were wondering, what is this person going to be? And now he's out there in the uh, wilderness by the Jordan looking like Elijah. So there was tremendous excitement. The Jews were expecting a deliverance, a new exodus. They thought it was going to be maybe from the Romans, but God had a better plan. But it still was this idea of, of a, a deliverance. And all of Judea and Jerusalem came out to be baptized with him. Even the Pharisees came out. They said, we've we got to go investigate this guy. They wanted to know who he was. So when we look at the gospel here, we see that John is on the scene, he's in the wilderness, he's at the Jordan, he's dressed like Elijah, he looks like Elijah, they think he's the end prophet, and he says, after me will come one more powerful than I, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Well, the first question you gotta ask is, who's he talking about? Now that's easy, he's talking about Jesus. No, you have to think like a first century Jew. Do you think a first century Jew would have ever said, oh, he's talking about Jesus? Of course not. Of course not. Who's he talking about? So maybe the Messiah, maybe the anointed one, but, but John doesn't say the Messiah. He says one mightier than I and one whose sandal strap I cannot untie. Let me tell you something. The one who unties your sandal strap and washes your feet when you come into the house is the slave. John is saying, this one who's coming, I can't even be a slave to this guy. See, John just isn't preparing them for Jesus, though he was. He's not preparing them just for the Messiah, just for the anointed one. He's preparing them for God himself. If we read in Mark, um, the, the first verse says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he goes to prophesy from Isaiah chapter 40. And this is what it says here. A voice of one calling in the desert place, prepare the way of who? The Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And then it goes on to say, lift up your voice with a shout. 
Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes. If you read Isaiah 40, and I hope you do, it's a comfort to Israel. It never mentions the Messiah. It only mentions the sovereign Lord, God Almighty, and a highway being made for him, what? To lead his people out on a new exodus. He was going to visit Jerusalem, God himself. And then John, John goes on to say, I baptize but water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, John is, is talking about two baptisms, one of repentance and one of of the Holy Spirit. The word baptism means to be immersed. And we're to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Picture it this way. When Jesus went down into the Jordan River, okay, he was immersed in the water. He couldn't breathe any air. Why? Because he was immersed. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And why we're in the world, we're to be immersed with the Holy Spirit, immersed in the kingdom of God and not the things of the flesh. And what would the first century Jew, now let's get this again, what would the first century Jew think about when this guy's talking about baptism in the Holy Spirit? The first century Jew, and even Jews today, they know nothing of the person of the Holy Spirit. The only thing they know about the Holy Spirit is that in the latter days, in the age of the Messiah, in the end times, God is going to pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. Remember Peter's sermon at Pentecost? He was quoting Joel, the prophet, and he said this day was prophesied in, the, in, in Joel that he was going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. John here is taking uh, the, this, this first century expectation of the latter days of the coming Messiah, the coming Redeemer, uh, and, and this, this Savior of the world, this end of the age, and he was linking the baptism of repentance with this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then all of a sudden, after he says that, Jesus shows up from Nazareth. And what does he do? Jesus is baptized. Don't be confused here. Jesus did not need to be baptized any more than he needed to go to the cross. He knew no sin. His death was not required of him. But why was he baptized then? He was baptized to identify with sinners. He was, ident he was uh, uh, baptized to identify with Israel. In fact, he was going to come in his own person, do everything that Israel was supposed to do and didn't do, and he was going to do it in his own person. He was going to make a new Israel. See, we're seeing a new Israel being started this day. That's why he picked 12 apostles. They were going to be the new 12 tribes of this new Israel, the church. And the, and the members of the tribes of Israel were going to be by faith and not by genealogy. He was submitting himself to the overall plan of God and accepting his messianic vision on the very first day that he entered his public ministry. It was an act of humility and obedience before God and before men. It also says in another place that he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was going to fulfill, fill up our righteousness. It was a foreshadowing of his real baptism, which was the cross. 
See, Jesus was baptized for the same reason that he went to the cross. He stepped into the place of sinners, just like you and just like me. This baptism here, then, was an anticipation of the cross. In fact, all, all, all the sins that these people were coming out of Judea and Jerusalem and, and dumping into the Jordan River, Jesus goes under and he takes them upon himself. He sanctified everything that Jesus touched, he sanctified. He was sanctifying. This, this was a foreshadowing of what he was to do. Remember when he was on the road and two of his disciples came to him and said, when you get, when you get to your kingdom and you're sitting in your king's chair, uh, can I sit on your left and can I sit on your right? And he said, well, that's not for me to give. It's for my father to give. But then he says to him, are you willing to be baptized with the baptism that I'll be baptized with? See, this was, this, what I just said, was after his baptism. He's still talking about, are you willing to be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? He was talking about the crucifixion. In fact, Bob Humbert made this wonderful piece of art here that has so many uh, it's saying so much if you look at it and meditate on it. But one of the things, you see the wounds of Christ, but you don't see the body of Christ because we're the body of Christ, but the wounds are there to remind us that by his wounds we are healed. But if you look around all the wounds, you'll see ripples of water. Because when he did it, Bob was saying, look, when you look at the crucifix, you're looking at the baptism of Jesus. So Jesus at his baptism was saying yes to his death sentence. He was saying yes to the cross. And then what happens? A voice from heaven comes. God the Father says that, well, first of all, the, the, the heavens were torn asunder before the Father speaks. It was torn asunder. <clears throat> and, and it was parted, just like the Red Sea was parted. Now the heavens were parted. This new exodus is going to lead us to the presence of God. Interestingly enough, the same word is used at the crucifixion for the veil in the temple that separated the people and even the priest from the Holy of Holies where only God, where God resided. And that veil was torn in two, ripped asunder, just like this word, the heavens were ripped asunder at his baptism. And it was a, now we have access to the Father through the Son by the, Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're seeing it right here, foreshadowed in his baptism. And then the God the Father speaks. You know, God the Father only speaks three times in the, in the New Testament. How telling, how important he speaks on this day. This day in history that we remember is an unbelievable day, almost like none other. Few are more important. And he heard a voice that said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Why was the Father well pleased? It was at this moment, at this very moment, on the first day of his public ministry, after coming to earth to do the mission, that we see in his baptism, he accepts in obedience and submission with humility the mission that the Father had said, had sent him. He says yes to the will of the Father. He's the new Isaac. He's going to be the new Isaac. He's going to be the, the promised son, the only son, the beloved son that a first century Jew would connect to Isaac. But only now, God's not going to hold his hand back when it comes to Jesus. And he's going to send the Holy Spirit. So finally, we see here that the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. 
if we read the Gospel of Luke about the baptism, we'll see that this, the dove was in bodily form. I don't know whether people heard God speak, you are my beloved son. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I don't know, it didn't say so. But it does say in Luke that the Holy Spirit came in bodily form. And John says in another Gospel that he saw that happen. So the, probably the people did see this, but they definitely saw the, the, the dove if in fact, well, because he came in bodily form. And so what is that symbolic of? What would a first century Jew think of? Well, if he saw this Holy Spirit or this dove hovering over the waters, he could have thought about the very first uh, uh, verses of, of Genesis, where you see the Holy Spirit brooding over the deep. But he also would have remembered, surely, that a dove was sent out by Noah. And when the dove came back, there was an olive branch in his mouth. Now, both of them are symbols of peace. Of course, we have peace with God, but there's more to it than that. You see, everything was killed and destroyed during the flood. And now when he came back with an olive branch, there was a recreation. There was a new creation. Life was coming back. See, when he descends on Jesus, we see this dove over the waters. We see the Father speaking, like the, like the Holy Spirit brooding over the waters, and the Father saying, let there be. This, Jesus is the author of a new creation. He's the inaugurator of one. And we know that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have a chance to become a new creature. Aren't you tired of the old self? Jesus is the inaugurator of this new creation. Remember in, Psalm 40, in Isaiah 42, we read it, it was in the first reading. It says that, that um, this, this, this servant of the Lord that was going to come, it says that God the Father, I will put my spirit upon him. Now, if they know Isaiah, all of a sudden, they're seeing this event. And they're saying, what is this? Now, did they understand it fully like us? No, they saw it dimly, much of the way we see a lot of things still dimly. But also in Isaiah 42, later on, he says, and he will be given as a covenant to the people. Can you imagine? God is going to make a covenant. Every covenant he made with us, we blew. Right from the day of Adam, we blew it all. But now he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to become flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Father is going to make a covenant with the Son. And I don't lie, and I don't break my covenant. He doesn't lie. He doesn't break his covenant. It's going to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. We see the, all three of them here. And he doesn't lie, and he doesn't break his covenant. God made a covenant with us through him. Thank God he made it with him and not with me. And you see this Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. And the next thing he's going to do, he's going to lead him into the wilderness, and he's going to just like Joshua, a new Joshua, He's, where Joshua conquested the, 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 the promised land, Jesus is going to conquest our enemy. He's going to destroy the works of the devil. That's for another day. But that's the power that's descending upon Jesus. So in just these few verses, we see the attitude, the acceptance, the mission, the ministry, the empowerment of Jesus for his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. Just like in, in Genesis, in those first few verses, a few chapters, we could see the whole story. The whole story is unfolding right in front of us in just these few verses in the baptism of Jesus. See, Jesus was given a death certificate. His death certificate was issued before the foundations of the earth. 
But now he's accepting it. It's a death certificate that he freely accepted. You're going to hear those words at the Eucharistic prayer, that it was a death that he freely accepted. You know, in your baptism, you were given a death certificate. You thought it was a baptismal certificate. It's a death certificate. And this death certificate has to be freely accepted by faith through the graces that were given to you, afforded to you in that baptism. And it's a death certificate of the old self. The Apostle Paul tells us that we were baptized, that we were, uh, uh, through his baptism, we were buried with him. And we were raised with him through our baptism. We were baptized into his death. But why did Paul say that? He said that we are so that we can walk in newness of life. And this newness of life is putting away the old self in obedience to the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We can't do it without the power of God. You can't pit your mind against your flesh. It doesn't work. The flesh wins. You can only pit the Spirit of God against your flesh. And God, that's why he's baptized us in the Holy Spirit, to give us the power to walk in newness of life. You see, only God can give you himself. I can't give him to you. John knew that he couldn't give it to you. John knew that I can only baptize you in water. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. I can't give you him. John couldn't give you to him. Only God can give you himself. So ask him. So I would say to you that if you're having difficulty living in the Holy Spirit, if you're constantly falling with, in those things that so easily entangle you, you've got to ask God to baptize you in the Holy Spirit, to fill you with that Holy Spirit. Pray to the Holy Spirit. He's not out there. If you're a believer, he is in here. And when you pray to him, pray to him as if he's in there. And I guarantee you, you'll sense his presence. And with his power, you'll be able to walk in newness of life and hear the Father say, you're my beloved son or you're my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. In the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You know, uh, in order to have this relationship with God, he promised to send a redeemer. But, but in order to receive the redeemer, there's two things involved. One is one of repentance, turning from your sins. And the other is asking God to send the Holy Spirit into us. The whole message is in this little section that we just read. So anyone watching online or anyone here, if you would like to receive God's Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of your sins in this new creation, this new life, this new exodus, by this new Moses, this new Joshua, this new Elijah, Jesus himself, then why don't we pray this prayer? Please bow your head and let's pray. If you'd like to receive Christ, repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Heavenly Father, please accept the death of Jesus on my behalf. And Lord, I open up my whole being, my heart, my mind, my soul, everything that's me, Lord. I open it up and I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Father, that you would make me the person you want me to be. And from this day forward, Lord, I promise to do to the best of my ability everything your spirit and your word says. Thank you, Lord Jesus. 
Now, Heavenly Father, I just ask you now, if anyone's prayed this prayer, that you would just empower them with your Holy Spirit, that they would have a real sense of his abiding presence. Lord, that you would lead them in the way everlasting. And Father, that you would give us the grace to, uh, and, and the wisdom to lead them in their new life with Christ. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer online, please let your host know. Anyone here who prayed it? I'll be out in the lobby afterwards. God wants us to take things that happen in the spiritual realm and bring them into the physical realm. You have to tell somebody. So tell me. God bless.